All right, 1 Samuel 27. And if time permits, we'll, we'll poke our head into the first couple of verses of 1 Samuel 28 as well. Well, chapter 26 ended with David. He had snuck into Saul's camp, taken Saul's spear and water jug, and he did that as proof that he could have done Saul harm, but he chose not to. And why did David do that? Well, we learn at the end of the chapter, it was to convince Saul to just leave him alone. And you know, Saul agreed to these terms. But as we'll see shortly, David is not convinced. And thus, David makes a decision to leave the land of Israel. Not because God told him to, but because he's tired of being on the run from Saul. And this advances the downward spiral that David has started in his life. And we're going to see him rapidly get far away from the Lord. Something that can happen to any person uh, if, if their heart becomes wayward. So chapter 27, verse 1. And David said in his heart, I shall now perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should speedily escape into the land of the Philistines. And then Saul shall despair of me to seek me any more in the coasts of Israel. So shall I escape out of his hand. So David arose and he passed over with 600 men that were with him unto Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. David dwelt with Achish of Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, even David with his two wives, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the Carmelitess, Nabal's wife. And it was told Saul that David was fled to Gath, and he sought no more again for him. We start here by gaining some insight into the thoughts of David's heart, that he says in his heart, Saul's going to get me eventually. I shall now perish one day by the hand of Saul. That is a stark contrast to David's earlier words to Abishai when they were in the middle of the camp. In chapter 26, verse 10, he told Abishai, David said, furthermore, as the Lord lives, the Lord shall smite him, Saul, or his day shall come to die, or he shall descend into battle and perish. When we consider that David uttered those words in a far more dangerous situation than he's in now, the reasoning is very confusing. Why now, David, would you all of a sudden lose heart? Your mission was a success. Saul has agreed to leave you alone, and he proves it by going home. What happened now? What was the change here that you finally lose heart? You know, there's an old children's hymn called, Oh, Be Careful Little Eyes, and you may have heard it. It starts off by saying, oh, be careful little eyes what you see. For the Father up above is looking down in love, so be careful little eyes what you see. The second stanza changes to, oh, be careful little ears what you hear, and then it progresses to, oh, be careful what your tongue speak, be careful what your hands do, be, ha- be careful where your feet go, be careful what your hearts trust in, until it concludes with, oh, be careful little mind what you think. We're going to take a very dark journey with David in this chapter, probably the darkest of his life. But we must consider, we must understand how, we, how he got there if we're to prevent our hearts from growing wayward. David's problems began because his thought life did not match with all of the facts. And we look at some of the facts, yes, they, it matched. Was David a fugitive? Yes. Was David living a difficult life currently? Yes. 
Uh, had those difficulties in David's life gone on for a long time? Yes, those are all true things. But David was also still alive. David, God had spared him every single time it looked like he was done for up to this point. God had surrounded David with loyal, faithful men. And God had provided for David's every need, even though he didn't know where those needs were coming from. And as such, God's promise continually held true throughout the entireties of this difficult time for David. So the problem lies isn't not in the fact that David didn't have some facts, but David chose to dwell on the negative facts. And this created a track of thinking that concluded something that wasn't true because it only took into account some of the facts. And so in verse 1, David goes on to say in conclusion after he says, Saul's going to get me, he says, there is nothing better for me than that I should speedily escape into the land of the Philistines. There is no other good option. The word better means good, agreeable, pleasant. There is no happy ending for David if I stay here. I only have one good option if I want to survive. I need to leave Israel and go live with the Philistines. Now, to put this into context, this is similar to saying, well, I don't have the finances to pay my mortgage, and I don't see any options to get more finances through my normal means. My only option is to rob a bank. It's, it's similar. It's similar thinking. I know I'm being silly, but it's similar thinking. Doing something wrong is never the only option available to us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, and I know I've referenced this quite a few times over the last few chapters of um, 1 Samuel, why don't we turn there? Because we're actually going to be in 1 and 2 Corinthians and then Philippians, and, and we're going to kind of camp here for a second because I think it's important. If we're going to understand how David gets to where he is, we have to understand what the Scriptures say about our thought life. In 1 Corinthians 10, uh, 13, we have that very famous passage. There has no temptation taken you. The phrase means overtaken you. There is, there is nothing that comes into our life that has, we didn't invite it. <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't ask for it, you know, but it overtook us. It caught up to us. We were at lunch today and the TV station that had on, uh, instead of like normal sports, it had like weird sports. And so one of the things that was on the station was someone in this massive, huge, like, hamster ball, and their goal was to chase down a bunch of these other people who were outside the hamster ball. And, I mean, it, it looked horrifying. This was a gigantic thing, and it was rolling over people. And, I, I mean, I can see where some people just kind of checked out. And, of course, the last person standing was the one who won. You needed to know all that information, so I decided to give it to you. That's the idea, that you didn't invite this thing, well, maybe they did, but you didn't invite this thing into your life that's steamrolling towards you and looks like it's going to crush you. Paul says, there is no temptation overtaking you, but such as is common to man. In other words, everybody's got a hamster ball coming their way. Bet you never heard that interpretation before. Something is bearing down upon people all over the world. You're not alone in this, but God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able. I always love how this verse is misquoted by saying, God will never give you anything more than you can handle. God frequently gives me things more than I can handle because I can't handle much. Neither can you. 
We, we, we can do nothing without Him. God frequently gives us things that are well above our pay grade, well above our, well above our capacity to handle. That's not what the Scripture says. It says that He is faithful and He won't allow us to be tempted above that which we are able. In other words, there will always be a means, an option for us to reach out to Him. There will always be that available. But He will make a way, of, but with that temptation, He will also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it, to endure it. And so, when we look at all the previous times that David left the promised land, what did God do? He sent him back. Sometimes even he sent a prophet into a foreign country to say, David, go back into the promised land. And so, while life was challenging for David whenever he obeyed the Lord and that, God took care of him every time. And God would continue to do so if David would stay in the promised land, even if, even if Saul broke his word again. But David convinced himself that Saul would eventually catch him, that if if he stayed in the land, he'd be done for. He convinced himself that the only way out was an option that God had never, never made available to him, to leave the promised land. And the only way that happens to, to someone, to me or to you, is if I allow my mind to dwell on thoughts that oppose what God says. That's the only way. If I allow my mind to dwell and camp out on thoughts that are opposed to what God says, that's the only way I can come to the conclusion that God won't come for, through for me this time. Everything that happens in this chapter occurs because David lost the battle in between the ears in this thought life. If we turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul the Apostle tells the Corinthians, listen, for though we walk in the flesh, we don't war after the flesh. Like the Lord is not looking down at you going, yeah, can you not figure this out on your own? I mean, I mean, you know, I mean, this is like a B-grade temptation, you know? You know, can you not figure this out on your own? Are, are you a C-grade Christian, I guess, you know? Like the Lord is never looking down and, and thinking, well, you know, uh, Gabriel, I know I could send you to help, but at this point, you know, this is something I think they kind of need to be able to handle on their own. You know, they need to put their big boy pants on and go at it. The Lord never does that. That's not the way He operates with us. He wants us to trust Him. We don't war after the flesh. Verse 4 of 2 Corinthians 10. For the weapons of our warfare, they're not carnal. They're not fleshly. But they are mighty, and they're spiritual, And those spiritual weapons are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. In other words, whatever wall we need to scale to take ground from the enemy that God's calling us to do so, we can do it through these spiritual weapons. And how do we do that? Well, it tells us in verse 5, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. What's an imagination? An imagination, uh, the concept behind that word is an argument. In other words, an imagination is, you know, if you were to say, well, I need to go out and mow the yard. And if all of a sudden a thought would come into your mind, but I live near a lake and there's alligators in the lake. That would be an argument, an imagination, something that is going to come into your mind that's going to oppose the thing you're trying to do, to set out to do. It's a silly one, but it's, that's the idea. So through our spiritual weapons, and our spiritual weapons are the Word of God and prayer, right? Through those things, we can cast down those arguments 
that say, no, 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 you can't do that. You can't obey God or you, this, that option that God gives to you is not available to you in your specific situation. Through the word of God, we can cast that down and say, no, it is written. We can also cast down every high thing, which literally means every proud thought, every arrogant thought that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, what we know about God. So not only are there arguments that the enemy brings our way or our flesh brings our way, that says, no, you can't do what God says in this instance because it won't work. You know, we also have these proud thoughts that come up and say, well, God doesn't really love you, or God's not going to be faithful to you in this situation, or that promise works for other people, it doesn't work for you, or that promise works in these circumstances, but not in this one. These are proud, arrogant thoughts that we can come up with in our mind that somehow they exalt themselves. We lift them higher than what we know about the Lord. When we say, well, I know God loves me, and I know he says this in his word, but then we have our own thought, and we put it at a higher level. It's a proud, arrogant thought, and we put it at a higher level than what God says. When we come to the scriptures and we say, no, it is written, we can cast that down too. And we can bring into captivity every thought, every thought to the obedience of Christ. You know, believers are given clear instructions on what we're allowed to think about and what we're not allowed to think about. In Philippians chapter 4, flip over a few pages to the right, you'll find Philippians 4. Paul starts off a section on our mind, the place where the battle occurs, and before he outlines what we're allowed to think about, he says, be anxious for nothing. We're not to be anxious about anything. We're not to, to have anxious thoughts about anything. But instead, he says, in everything, by prayer and supplication, Philippians 4, 6, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. If you have a concern, take it to the Lord, you know, by prayer and supplication, and with thanksgiving, with a thankful attitude, let your request be made known unto God. And as a result, the peace of God, which passes all understanding, means it surpasses, it's better than understanding. I want God to give me understanding. <laughs> God, tell me how this is going to play out, and then I'll be okay. And the Lord says, I'll give you something better. I'll give you my peace. I'll give you my peace. And that will guard your heart and your mind through Christ Jesus. And so he says, finally, brethren, in light of this, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. That's our boundaries. Those are our boundaries of what we're allowed to think about. And so David, if he would have taken the time to, I know he didn't have this scripture, but the principle is all throughout scripture. If he would have taken the time to ask the question, Lord, I'm thinking I'm done for right now. Is that true? Well, no, you made a promise to me I'm going to be king, so it can't be true. Saul can't get me. I mean, and then it's over. But I mean, he could have looked at so many other things. He could have looked at, you know, here is where the Lord our God is one Lord, you know, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, you know, and all your soul and all your mind. He could think about so many other scriptures that would have come to mind that oppose this idea that there is no good option for me except going to live with the Philistines. 
And when I get to a place where God's commands no longer seem like viable options to me, I can rest assured that I have violated 2 Corinthians 10 and Philippians 4 in some way. In some way, I have begun to lean on my own understanding when I come to that conclusion. And that kind of stinking thinking will always result in bad decision-making, always. When we go outside the boundaries that God gives to us for where we're supposed to be in here, the thoughts that we're allowed to let be in our mind, we're always going to, it's always going to result in bad decision-making. And so what David concludes in the end of verse 1 is he says, if I do this, Saul shall despair. He will give up hope to seek me anymore in any coast of Israel, and so shall I escape out of his hand. Now, David's thinking might seem to make sense. You think, okay, that makes sense. You know, if you leave the promised land, then maybe Saul will just stop. (laughs) But how does leaving your homeland to go into enemy territory make you safer? It doesn't. But you know, here's here's the wicked truth. The enemy of our soul is perfectly fine with those kind of decisions. Like if you sit down and you go, okay, 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 okay. All right, Saul's gonna kill me. I mean, there's, there's no way. My only good option is to go into the land where I've killed a bunch of Philistines and they are, we're at war with them. That's my only option. And the enemy's gonna go, that's a great, that's great thinking, man. You know, I, I, I'll back that decision up, man. You know, this is a great idea. And then he'll do his little thing and he'll be like, hey, you know, I'm gonna make Ash, King Achish have a really good day when David comes by, you know. He has no problem with that kind of decision-making process, you know? Because here's the truth. What if he can prosper David in the land of the Philistines so much that David changes his mind about Saul? What if he can get David to take Saul's life and set himself up as king? He could ruin God's plan for David. And this is why Passages like 2 Corinthians 10, Philippians 4, things you'll hear me share a lot about because our thought life is so crucial that we take control of it. The Bible says that we have been given not a spirit of fear, but of love and of discipline and of what? A sound mind. A sound mind. The Bible calls us to renew our minds through the Word of God. Our minds are not just allowed to run amok. Listening to the enemy's lies can start a chain reaction that leads me to a destination I would have never headed toward if I knew beforehand where that thinking would take me. And that's why the enemy's okay with it. You see, Satan doesn't tempt David by saying, yo, we're gonna join the Philistines and you're gonna be willing to kill Saul someday, cool? That's not how he works. He never works that way. He doesn't say, hey, you know what? This decision you're about to make right now is gonna destroy your marriage. Doesn't that sound great? That's not how he works. And we walk into a situation thinking, well, I've got control of this. I will never end up here. But he knows full well the chain reaction that that thinking starts. Now, he tempts us by showing us how miserable we will be if we obey the Lord, if we keep trusting God. He tempts us by convincing us that God's commands are no longer viable and that we're only left with his options making it seem like we've just been really smart. You know, in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, it says that we're not not to be conformed to this world. That phrase conform means to let the world squish you into its mold. 
And we must not allow the enemy to squish us into his mold. I need to renew my mind daily by taking wrong thoughts captive and filling my mind with God's Word. That's what the Bible says. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Because if we don't renew our minds, if I just let any old thought bang around in my head, my heart will, it will begin to become wayward, and I'll begin to drift from the Lord. Because my natural tendency, my natural human tendency is not to pursue the Lord. <laughs> my natural human tendency is to drift away from the Lord. That's what the Scripture says. Scripture says in Hebrews chapter, that's not my opinion, that's the Bible. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, it tells us, it gives the very first warning of the book of Hebrews. It says, therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard. Therefore, we need to give the more earnest heed. We need to pay close attention. Hebrews 2, verse 1. We need to pay very close attention. That's what it means to give the more earnest heed. To pay really close attention to the things that we have heard. What are the things that we have heard? This. The Scriptures. Why? Lest at any time, King James says, we should let them slip. But literally it means we should drift away. That's our natural tendency. Our natural tendency, if I just put it on autopilot, is I will begin to drift away. So I need to pay close attention to my relationship with the Lord so that as a result, I will be drawing near to him, right? That's why the Lord has to exhort us, draw near to God and he will draw near to you, right? Like the Lord wouldn't have to say that if my natural tendency is to just draw near to God. You know, if I just woke up spiritual and craving Jesus and always wanting to do the right thing, I wake up and the kids are all amok and I come out and I just, Jesus loves all of you, you know, you know, I get up and, and you know, and, and something happens with Bev doing something I don't like. I, you know, I'm in that perfect mood where I'm ready, to, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to forgive. I'm ready to be gracious. I'm ready to be kind. No. I, I mean, maybe that's just me. I have to make choices that say, no, I'm going to draw near to God. I need Jesus today or someone's not making it to tomorrow. Because I know, I know, <laughs> I've been walking with the Lord. I got saved in 1988, okay? I'm trying to do the quick math. 12, that's like 30-something years. I've got 30 years of experience that shows me what happens when I don't spend time with Jesus. When I don't spend time with the Lord, I'm not seeking his face, I'm not drawing near to him. I have 30 years of evidence of what my normal tendency is. And it's not good. You know, we used to have, early on in our marriage, Bev and I, uh, we would have a little thing we would do when, when uh, things were not well, and, and one of us would ask the other and say, hey, when's the last time you spent time with Jesus? And, and because the reality was, is any problem you have in life is not, a, it's not really a person problem. It's not a, it's not a boss problem. It's not a work problem. It's not a government problem. It's a Jesus problem. Every problem I have is always a Jesus problem. Because if I'm resting in him, I'm hoping in him, I'm trusting in him, I'm confident in him, I'm, I'm resting in his love, all those things, then what? Well, it's, it, read Psalm 27. You'll see what life's like, right? Fret not because of evildoers, you know? I mean, just look at all of the exhortations in there and all the wonders of what we can have if we just trust the Lord, if we walk with him, if we rest in him. I realize we're only one verse into the chapter, <laughs> 
But the reason I've spent so much time on this is because we must understand why the rest of this chapter happens if it's going to make any sense. Because a lot of what David's going to do in this chapter is so different than the David we've known up to this point. It's going to look weird. It tells us in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 2, for if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, in other words, the Old Testament scriptures, and every transgression and every disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how should we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and then was confirmed unto us by them who hurt him? In other words, you know, if, if there were consequences to ignoring what God said in the Old Testament, and now God's own Son has spoken to us, and we're not going to take that into account, we're not going to pay heed to our relationship with Him, we can't expect that we're going to just be fine. There will be negative consequences. And so we have to take control of our thoughts. We can't let ourselves get to this place that David did. I mean, if you've known someone who, who walked closely with Jesus but doesn't now, it started in here. It started in here. And it, it should humble us into realizing that we're all capable of that if we let our minds run amok. So let's not do that. You know, let's decide to not have the story of our lives take David's dark turn. So verse 2. So David arose. He spent time stewing in his stinking thinking, and now he acts on it. And he rose and he passed over with the 600 men that were with him unto Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. I love that it says he passed over because he crossed a line that should never have been crossed. One that he wouldn't have crossed had he stuck with God's promises. And I think it's interesting that it makes a point that he took 600 men with him over that line. David's unbelief did not just hurt him. He influenced 600 other men and their families with his bad thinking. Now, he specifically goes to Achish, uh, the king of Gath. Remember, the Philistines had five lords or five kings, or, and, and so it was kind of a different setup than Israel had with one king. And the king of Gath was a guy named Achish. He's the same king that David fled two years before. Remember the time that he pretended to be crazy, insane, after he realized what a dumb idea it was to do this the first time? Apparently, years had not taught him anything. Well, this time, David doesn't come by himself, at least. He doesn't come in a weak position like last time. He comes with 600 men offering himself and them to Achan's service. And the king accepts, verse 3. And so David dwelt with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, their families. Even David with his two wives, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess and Abigail the Carmelitess, Nabal's wife. I think it points out again, David's got two wives. This, the cracks in the armor had started before. This is not the start of it. This is further along the road. It started before. Now, this is likely the first roof besides a cave that David and his men lived in under for years. And while I'm sure it was awkward walking around a Philistine city to purchase burritos for dinner, I'm sure that beat wandering around in the desert. And this is what the enemy promised David. Don't trust the Lord. That life is hard, man. And it will not work out in the end. You'll die. You can have a better life. And now David and his men have it. Whatever apprehensions any of David's men had or David had himself surely faded when they were finally able to relax for the first time in many years. And at first glance, it does appear that David's plan works. Look at verse 4. And it was told Saul that David was fled to Gath. And so he sought no more again for him. Saul did not come hunting David, 
anymore. The phrase there is interesting. Sought no more again means he did not add to his seeking, which, you know, if you read it at first, you think, oh, so he was going to hunt Saul again. David was right. The way that's phrased, though, it just means he did not add to whatever seeking he had already done. Uh, And so it could mean that David was right. Maybe Saul would have broken his promise again. But perhaps this is just a statement clarifying that Saul didn't hunt David again like he promised David he wouldn't. We'll never know because David took the situation into his own hands. Now, we can read this and it can be tempting to say, David, why did you do something like this earlier? Clearly this is the right choice. Well, David and his men don't just get to lounge around and gaff. They're not just in a witness protection program. They're working for Achish now, working for the enemy. And the things Achish is going to command David to do will be very distasteful. And so to cover up David's disobedience to the king, David's going to ask the king to give him a a separate city for him and his men to live in. Look at verse 5. And David said unto Achish, if I have now found grace in your sight, in other words, if I'm in your favor, if you trust me now, he says, let them give me a place in some town in the country. Give me and my men a home somewhere in the open countryside, somewhere where not a lot of people are living, that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? And so then Achish gave him Ziklag that day. Wherefore, Ziklag pertains unto the kings of Judah unto this day. And the time that David dwelt in the country of the Philistines was a full year and four months. Ziglag is about 30 miles south of Gath. It's about as far away as you can get from Gath and still be in Philistine lands. It's about 10 miles northwest of Beersheba, which is almost at the bottom of Israeli lands as well. Beersheba was the southernmost city of Israel. The Israelites captured uh, Ziglag from the Philistines uh, under Joshua, but the Philistines clearly had taken it back at this point. In their war with Israel, though, the Philistines had overextended their borders. Very few Philistines had emigrated to to Ziklag. So this was an ideal place for David and his men to settle down. No Philistine presence, far away from Gath, and it would allow David to do what he wanted to do. Now, there is an interesting section here where it mentions that because of this, Ziklag pertains unto the kings of Judah unto this day, which shows us that 1 Samuel was written after the split between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, when there was a kingdom of Judah. Uh, when David eventually becomes king, Ziglag will, Ziglag will revert back to Israeli control. Now, David spent 16 months in the land of the Philistines. What did David and his men do during the time they worked for the Philistines? Well, verse 8 tells us, and here's where it takes the dark turn. And David and his men went up and invaded, the word there means to raid for the purpose of taking plunder and causing destruction. This is not some people they're at war with. David went and raided the Geshurites, three groups of people, the Geshurites and the Gezrites and the Amalekites. For those nations were of old the inhabitants of the land as you go to Shur, even unto the land of Egypt. And David smote the land and left neither man nor woman alive. And he took away the sheep and the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, the clothing, and he returned and he came to Achish." Who are these three groups of people? Well, the Geshurites, Joshua 13.2 mentions this as one of the people groups that the Israelis couldn't conquer when they invaded the promised land. Uh, They defeated many of the Canaanites, but this is one of the groups that was still there. They lived just south of the Philistines on the mountain plateau of the desert. 
The Gezrites were nomadic tribes living in the same region. The Amalekites, of course, are, we've known them before. They're nomadic descendants of Esau that were enemies of Israel. But it tells us these were of old the inhabitants of the land. In other words, these were the original settlers of the region between Canaan and Egypt. These are not people that lived in the promised land. They live in the region southwest of the promised land between Israel and Egypt. These are the original inhabitants there. Some of them God told them to drive out. Some of them, like the Gezrites, were never on God's radar. The Amalekites, though, were Israel's enemies. And like I said, the Gezrites were supposed to have been driven out of the land along with the Philistines. But that's not why David's attacking these groups. David has a different motive for wiping them out and taking their stuff. Look at verse 10. And Achish, when he comes back with the plunder... David comes back with a plunder. Achish said to him, whither have you made a road today? Or literally, it's, he sees all the stuff and he goes, you haven't made an invasion today, have you? I mean, this is quick, <laughs> you know. Wow, I mean, wow, you know, did you really go out and make an invasion today? And David says, an affirmative, yeah, against the south of Judah. Is that who he attacked? Against the Jeremielites and against the south of the Kenites. David is lying. The south of Judah would be the, his own people, of course, the southern part of the tribe of Judah's land. The Jeremielites are descendants of a man named Jeremiel who was from the tribe of Judah, but they had settled down south of Beersheba. And the Kenites were Moses' father-in-law's people. Remember, many of them helped Israel take the promised land, and as a result, they were given land in southern Judah. These are all Israelis that he's saying he attacked or allies of Israel that he attacked. These are all his own people he's claiming to have attacked. He claimed that these spoils he's bringing to Achish were brought from victories over his own people. He claimed that he was invading the promised land, not nomadic tribes that the Philistines weren't at war with. The only explanation for David's lie is that he wants Achish to believe he's forsaken his people completely, that he's 100% loyal to the Philistines and to their goals. And do you know how David covers up that lie? By murdering every person in these nomadic tribes to the south so that the truth can't come to Achish. Look at verse 11. And David saved neither man nor woman alive to bring tidings to Gath, saying, lest they should tell on us, saying, so did David, and so will be his manner all the while he dwells in the country of the Philistines. David killed every man, woman, child, anyone who could bring word that he was a liar and that he was not loyal to the Philistines. Now, I understand when you, people talk about David in a positive light that some Christians get a little, Ugh. There are some very distasteful things that David does over the course of his life. We haven't even gotten to the part where he sleeps with a woman who's not his wife, his best, one of his best friend's wife, and then kills his best friend to cover it up. So there are distasteful things that David does. And this is one of the darkest And sadly, David's plan works. And Achish believed David, saying, 
He has made his people Israel utterly to abhor him. Therefore, he shall be my servant forever. The word there, made his people to abhor, it means to bring shame or to cause a stink, and it's doubled for emphasis. Achish is saying, I I think I can trust this guy. He's burned his bridges for good. He'll never be able to go back to them after this. He really is loyal to me. (laughs) Maybe he didn't do that part. He'll be my servant forever. Now, we can make excuses for David by saying, well, he only did this because he didn't want to harm his own people, and this was the only way he and his men could stay safe in Philistia. But there are two problems with that excuse. First, if David plans to stay with the Philistines, he's going to have to fight his own people eventually. I mean, they're at constant war. And then the second problem, which should seem obvious to us all, what he did was mass murder. David isn't just lying to Achish here. He's not just lying to the rest of the Philistines. David's lying to himself. And when we lie to ourselves... For an extended period of time, eventually, whatever scruples we had about not crossing other boundaries begin to wear away. And so we're going to see a different situation now in verse 1 and verse 2. And it came to pass, chapter 28, verse 1, that in those days that the Philistines gathered their armies together for warfare to fight with Israel. Sometime during the 16 months, David served the Philistines, that's what those days means, the Philistines brought all their forces together for a massive campaign against Israel. And it says that Achish said to David, Know thou assuredly that you shall go out with me to battle, you and your men. In other words, David, you have new marching orders. You're going to fight with us against Israel. Now, if David planned ever to take a stand, now would have been the time. But he doesn't. Instead, he gives one of the most loyal statements he can give to Achish. Look at verse 2. And David said to Achish, Surely you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David after hearing this, Therefore I will make you keeper of my head forever. You're going to be my personal bodyguard from now on. I trust you more than I trust anybody. Now, (laughs) David, when he says, You will find out what your servant can do. Surely, the word there means therefore. In other words, that's my orders? All right. We're going to find out just how well I can execute them. You're going to find out just what kind of warrior I am. You'll find out just what kind of servant I am. Many Bible teachers presume that David would never fight against his own people, that he planned to turn on the Philistines once the fighting started. But there is absolutely no indication that David thinks that way at any point in this entire scenario. If you read ahead, you're going to see that David gets offended when the other Philistine lords who don't know David as well object to David and his men being there. He gets upset. He gets mad when he's not allowed to fight against Israel. So while we would never know for sure what David would do once he was on the battlefield against his own own people, David's words make it clear where his loyalty lies at this point. Right here. Himself himself. When he says, you shall see what your, know what your servant can do, that word your servant means bondservant. It's 
It's one of the strongest statements of commitment to servitude that you can give. It's used of officials to a king, but the concept is clear. Where you point, I go. You're the boss. And if a roof over David's head and a peaceful night of sleep without worrying if Saul's coming to get you requires serving a pagan king against his own people, David seems resolved to do so at this point. So much so that Achish makes him his personal bodyguard. Now, we don't get to how that turns out until a couple chapters from now because the scene's going to switch in verse 3 to Saul. I'm not going to go any further tonight because we'll cover that, Lord willing, next Sunday. And the scene switches to Saul and because we're going to see him not where he's supposed to be either. This is a dark time for these two individuals in their lives. And the reason it's dark is because this is what can happen to any person when their heart is wayward. Oh, David, it may have started as self-preservation, but if my idea of self-preservation leaves God out of the equation, then I will lose everything eventually. That's what Jesus said. In Matthew 16, 25, Jesus said that, well, let me read it to you. Matthew 16, 25, he says, for whosoever will save his life shall lose it. I mean, it's a pretty definitive statement, isn't it? But he says, whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? And so when we look at our situations and we think, but I, I can't do that. I can't obey God. If I obey God, I'm done for. I'm done for at my job or I'm done for with my life. I'm done for in this relationship. You know, whatever you can look at and say, if I do what God says I'm done for, we have fundamentally, fundamentally misunderstood what God wants for us. Because what God wants for us is something far greater than the worst thing that we could worry about. In Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, God conveys his heart towards his people who are in captivity because they disobeyed him. In Jeremiah 29, 11, he says, for I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. It says an expected end in King James. It means a future and a hope. Now, Certainly, we don't want to rip that out of its context. We understand this is a specific promise made to the captives who are in Babylon. But we have all sorts of scripture that conveys this heart of God towards us elsewhere. This is God's mindset. When God says this, he's describing his thoughts towards Israel. You know, yes, he's talking about the plan that he has for him in the rest of the chapter, but this particular verse, he's saying, I know the thoughts that I think towards you. What is God's thoughts towards me when I'm thinking I'm done for, when I'm going under? His thoughts towards me are of peace. They're not of evil. They're to give us a future and a hope. David, I love one of his prayers. It's at the end of Psalm, I think I told you to read Psalm 27 earlier. Read Psalm 37. That's the one I was referencing earlier. Psalm 27 is the one that ends where David said that if, if I had not, I, I would have fainted. If I did not believe, I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living.
If we don't believe that, that God's thoughts towards us are good, that they are of peace and not of evil, that he's for us and not against us, if we don't believe that, we are going to faint. And one of the ways we can faint is we just stop trusting the Lord. David knew that. That's why he said what he said, because he'd done that. He had fainted. And so, in the same way that God communicates his heart clearly toward the people here, it shows us his thoughts generally towards us. In the same way, the promise of God, the heart of God and what he wants us to do, even though our situation may not be the situation of the captives here, also holds true. In 29 verses 12 and 13, he says, then you shall call upon me and you shall go and pray unto me and I will hearken unto you and you shall seek me and find me when you shall search for me with all your heart. We know from other places that if we draw near to God, he'll draw near to us. That if we seek him, we will find him. That he calls us to love him with all of our heart, right? He calls us to seek him with all of our heart. And seeking God with all of our heart is the only solution to keeping our hearts from being wayward. It's the only solution. When we look at chapter 27 of 1 Samuel, there is no seeking of God in this chapter at all, none. In fact, God's name is entirely absent from this chapter. If you look at all the chapters of David's time in the land of the Philistines, it's almost completely absent. In fact, you'll get to one point where the only guy who mentions the Lord's name is actually Achish. <laughs> the pagan guy. So my encouragement to you tonight as we close this out is this. Let's be those who seek God with our whole heart. Amen? You know, let's be those who seek God with our whole heart. You know, let's be those who are anxious for nothing. But by prayer and supplication, we make our request known to God with thanksgiving do you know that there are times when, you know, you, want to, you pray this thing, you've been praying over and over and over again, and it seems like it's not going anywhere, right? There are times when I've prayed that, and, and you know what I need to do at that point? I just need to start thanking the Lord for all his blessings. You know, because if I just focus on that thing, it's not happening, you can start losing hope. And I just start thanking the Lord. I just say, Lord, let me think about what I do have. And I start thanking him, thank you for this, thank you for this, thank you for this, thank you for this. And it reminds yourself of the truth. Let's be those who seek God with our whole heart. Let's be those who aren't anxious for anything, but we make our request known to God. We seek his face. We take those thoughts captive that don't belong banging around in our mind, you know, bouncing around in our head. We bring them into obedience to Christ and renew our minds with his word. And as we do so, I promise you this, I promise you this, your heart will not grow wayward. Let's all stand. Oh, Lord, we, we hurt even when we're trusting you. Lord, it, it, trusting you doesn't mean the pain goes away of the things that are hard. We hurt, we ache, we cry out to you. Or we read so many of the Psalms of David where, you know, he talks about how his tears were just, he was sleeping in a bed of tears because he was just pouring his heart out to you. Some of us have been there too, Lord. 
We understand. We're not being ignorant of the fact that, that, that you know, we're not trying to say that, uh, Lord, you know, if we'll, just, we'll just do what you say and, and, and think what you want us to think that, you know, just be happy joy. We, we know, Lord, that sometimes it's painful. Lord, we also know that it's better to have your peace than to understand exactly what's going on. That resting in your promise is far better than trusting in ourselves. And so, Lord, help us. Help us to remain thankful. Remind us of all your goodness. And, Lord, we choose tonight to cling to that mindset that David developed later on when he said, I will believe that I'm going to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. That we'll experience, Lord, the the fruit of your spirit as we rest in you and trust in you through the pain, through the heartache. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.